0: Good morning. Today's scripture reading is Matthew 14, verses 1 through 21. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, This is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guest and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guest, he ordered that her request be granted and had John John beheaded in in prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by a boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so, that, so, that, so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven. He gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men, besides women and children.
1: All right, thank you very much. How is everybody? Uh, Good. Okay, Um, my name is Tommy. I'm the pastor here was not here last week. I heard Aaron's sermon. He did a great job. Um, I rigged the system to mess up the whole time he was preaching so that he'd be distracted. Just joking. We had technical difficulties, technical difficulties, like that's issues and difficulties combined. Um, now uh, real quick before we get going, um, a little housekeeping. Um, I have to make you aware of something. So basically this building is like 1963 or something. Um, and it's like people didn't really care what they were doing when they built these things. Um, because when one thing goes wrong, everything else starts to go. And so I just want to make you aware, we had an air conditioner that broke. We fixed it. It had to pass an electrical inspection. It failed. Um, and they said, oh, well, you don't have, you are not have to code with fire code. And we're like, well, what's that mean? And so they gave us this list. It gets really long. And it turns into basically this whole like fire panel and like pull switches and Things that come over the loudspeaker and like like rockets that shoot up in the air, um, and it's a long list, and it comes out to like seventeen or twenty thousand bucks. So I'm just like throwing it out there. Rich uncle passes away, and you didn't know him, It leaves you a bunch of money. Seventeen thousand dollars. <laughs> That's all we need. We won't we won't bother you again. Um, until we decide to get this one fixed someday. Okay, never mind. Um, so that's kind of how it goes. Buildings are, are complicated and difficult. And we knew if one thing went wrong, it was just gonna snowball. Here we are. Um, but it's all good. We got this. Um, we'll live. Uh, and and uh, offering boxes are there, there and there. And going goes online. Um, okay, so with that done, you're like, I haven't been to church in like five years. And here we are. Pastor's already asking for money. <laughs> it's not for me. It's for me technically for you. I, I don't know. It's a complicated. Let's not go there. Um, <laughs> let's not talk ecclesiology right now. Okay. Um, so this is our passage today. It's very big, very long. And I've already kind of talked about the feeding of the 5,000 from, from the angle of like miracle and the, the, the shepherd and, um, seating everybody in the grass and all this. So there's a lot of symbolism there. Um, I kind of jumped ahead and talked about it several months ago. Uh, We're coming at it again, and I did this on purpose because I want to come at it from a completely different angle. In this book, there are layers of Jewish ideals going on um, that Matthew is doing. I'm beginning to lose my voice. Some of the songs were higher than I intended to sing them. Um, So I'm going to open this up in a word of prayer, and we're going to go through this passage. We're going to start right here, and I'm going to give you um, a very Jewish way to read this passage. So when you go back to it and you pick it up again, you're going to say, oh, I didn't see that before, okay? So uh, let's pray and uh, pray that <clears throat> I feel it going. It's going, my voice is going. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. I ask that you would give us, um, that you would give us peace, that we would be present here uh, with our brothers and with our sisters. Um, bind us together in unity. Um, Give us a creative vision of the future, of what the world can look like uh, through your work and us partnering with you to do this work. Um, Somehow use us and the little gifts and abilities that we have to bring about reconciliation, redemption, um, restoration of this world. Um, I ask that that would start now and that it it would move forward from this point forward and, and, and that... Um, I would be able to think clearly and communicate clearly the things that I've studied this week and that we would all receive exactly what you have for us. Help us to be honest with ourselves. Help me to be honest with the people that that you've entrusted uh, me to speak to. Uh, Thank you for each and every one of them here. Every single person in this room. Thank you that they are gathered here this very morning. In your name, amen. Okay, here we go. Uh, Matthew 14, 1 and 2. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch, Tetrarch means 10, he was in charge of uh, a certain amount of territories. Um, He uh, he heard the reports about Jesus and he said to his attendants, this is John the Baptist, he has risen from the dead um, and this is why miraculous power is at work in him. So your first response when you read this is like, what? Why do you think this was John the Baptist? It's a great question. Thank you for that question. Um, Okay, so there's some interesting stuff going on here. If you read... um, uh, a second-century uh, Christian scholar named uh, Origen, he um, he actually writes about this tradition that in his day, in the second century, you know, you probably know people whose like grandparents may have met both Jesus and John the Baptist, right? Like, um, it's not far off to think that like these traditions would have stayed. Now, there is a tradition that, that Origen writes about that John and Jesus looked very similar. Um, They were cousins, very close cousins. Um, And he writes how, how people mistake them for each other. They looked very, very similar. Um, So some of this might be at play, but there's also something else going on as well. Um, Why would he be afraid of John the Baptist coming back from the dead? Um, We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about, um, because what's going on here is Jesus is is teaching these parables and then it sort of freeze frames and it like pans over to the temple of, of Herod, right? This is... Not much to look at now, but in its day, it was fancy. Um, And he would have been here and and it's sort of like, it fades away to Herod's palace. Meanwhile, back at the palace. And someone runs in and says, there's a guy preaching about kingdoms. He's like a Messiah type figure. And I got to say, kind of looks like the guy you killed. (laughs) Okay. And Herod's like, oh no, he's back from the dead. And he's doing miracles. He's doing miracles? Oh, no. Okay. So there's like this, this scene that is set. And then uh, the narrator, Matthew, pauses that and sort of fades back to what happened to John. Because he's like, John's back from the dead. And we're like, he died. Like the other day we watched um, that superhero movie. with was Superman and Batman. It wasn't very good. Um, and um, and, and start, I hadn't seen the one before it. And the movie starts with like Superman's dead. I was like, what happened to Superman? Okay. So I still actually don't know. I'll go back and I'll let you know. Um, so, but there's like this thing that happened and we didn't know about. So, so Matthew writes the story of exactly what happened to John. And before we get there, there is some things you need to know about Herod that will make this whole story make a lot more sense. Because it's kind of a weird story. John confronts Herod um, about adultery. And you're like, why is John doing, confronting him? I mean, Caesar did worse stuff. What's going on? And why did he have to kill John for doing that? I mean... People say bad stuff about people people, people all the time. So here's the story. Herod is half Jewish, okay? Um, Herod likely grew up in a Jewish tradition. He knows Jewish theology. He knows also the role of the king. Um, Israel was meant to be ruled by only Jewish kings. Um, This was how it was meant to be set up since the time that God started allowing Israel way back in the book of Samuel to have earthly kings. Now... um, being a Jewish king, half Jewish king, but Jewish nonetheless, um, he would have understood the interplay between the king of Israel and the prophet of Israel. There is a specific relationship that they had. Um, The king's job was to rule over Israel under Yahweh. Okay. That was his role. It's sort of the role of like, Adam and Eve in the garden, what we were meant to, sort of the role we were meant to be at. So um, over God's creation, the fallen creation un, un, under God. So there is, here, let me, let me illustrate this for you. Uh, there you go. Okay, now um, there is one place the king is supposed to lead, okay? Towards God. There is a path. Um, oftentimes they would call it the way or the road. When Jesus says, I am the way, this is what he's talking about. Um, there is a specific path the king was supposed to take, not physical, literal path. They're talking about the law, the Torah. And the king was meant, the, the Jewish king of all of Israel was always meant to lead the people um, down the path of the Torah towards God and towards partnering with God, towards the restoration of all things, the salvation of the Gentiles, the restoration of human beings to where they were created to be and meant to be under God, over creation, dominion, all that. Okay. The, the picture of Genesis 1. Uh, Genesis three. Um, So this is the picture that we're supposed to have. Um, Now, so the king is supposed to lead the people towards the path of of Torah. That means like um, he's supposed to keep himself in line with the law himself. If the king gets off the path um, and goes his own way, if the king decides that he's gonna take part in idolatry and ignore the Torah and go their own way, um, the people of Israel would suffer. Okay, so God said, I'm gonna put somebody there to remind the king that when he goes off path, the people are going to suffer. So that he ventures off path and what happens? The prophet pops up. That's a prophet with a staff. Um, the prophet pops up and says, excuse me, excuse me, where do you think you're going? And he says, uh, I'm king. I wanna do that. I'm gonna go this way. And the prophet says, "I mm, hold on, let's talk. If you do this, here's what will happen. And he describes all kinds of terrible things that will likely happen when the king does this, okay? This was the role of the prophet. Him and the king had a very contemptuous relationship. Oftentimes we think of prophets uh, in modern evangelicalism, when we hear like, he's a prophet, we're like, ooh, he can tell the future. Um, It's not really what the prophet was. The prophet, I mean, there are times when they proclaimed like stuff is coming, um, but it was a natural progression of, The current path that the people were on so the the prophet his job was to speak the message of god to bring um the words of god to the people who need to hear him the king mainly and the people in general okay so this is the relationship of the king the kings did not like the prophets by and large there was a few that had a good relationship and and looked at them as like you're the wisdom of god you're bringing it to me thank you by and large, the, um, the job of the prophet was to walk alongside the king and sort of put a finger in his face and says, you're doing this all wrong. Here's what you got to do. Stop doing, that. Stop doing that. Thus saith the Lord, don't do that again or everything's going to go wrong, okay? Um, this was the role of the prophet. Um, so John the Baptist, you see him in, uh, when he come, first comes on the scene, he's in the wilderness. That's where prophets lived. He's wearing the prophet's cloak. It's made of camel hair. Um, he's wearing, that, that's what Elijah wore. He's wearing the leather belt. That's, that's what they, the, the prophet Elijah actually wore. He's got the staff. He's in the wilderness. He's, got, he's eating locusts and he's, he's, he's doing weird stuff. He's basically doing all these things that all the prophets kind of did. He's like taking little pieces, like he's like accessorizing himself with the accessories of the prophets. He's like, I want a little of this, a little of Elijah, a little of Elisha. A little. And he's just gonna take them all. He's gonna wear all their like signature pieces, right? So when he walks out and he starts speaking, they're going to be like, whoa, look, a prophet. Never seen one in real life. None of them had it. It had been 400 years since there had been one there. Um, so John is a prophet though. And John walks out and he's delivering the message of God. Naturally, he's keeping tabs on the Jewish king. And the Jewish king, it turns out, did some weird stuff. Now, um, it starts off a little bit like this. Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias. That's Herod's wife. Likely married her because they wanted to share luggage that was embroidered with their initials. Um, His brother Philip's wife, um, for John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. John knows the Torah. His job is to go to the king. He sees the king doing something that he shouldn't do. The king goes to his brother's kingdom, steals his wife, basically also usurps his power and his throne. Um, this is likely sort of some, some sort of power couple that would amass wealth and armies to get more territory. And he says, there are sexual sins here, there are political, moral, all kinds of stuff going on here. Um, and so John naturally being the prophet says, hold on a second. I just heard what the king did. He's got to go to the king. And Herod's like, oh no, here comes the prophet. And he's like, Herod, I'd like to talk to you. You're doing some things terribly wrong. And I'm, I'm going to make sure that you understand just how terrible what you are doing is and just what happens to the people if you continue down this path. And Herodias, Herod's wife, is not Jewish. She's having none of this. And she's doing what Romans do, kill him. So she has him arrested. She hatches this plot. Um, it's a thing. You already read it. It's, it's an interesting story. But anyways, it says in the end, give me here on a platter, the head of John the Baptist. Um, so she says this, and it says the king was distressed. Why was the king distressed? Because he's like, oh no. Oh no. She's, she's going to kill the prophet. And if we kill the prophet, this is a dangerous thing. You see, he's Jewish. He knows what happens when you kill The prophet. So, this was the role, and and we're going to get to that in a few minutes. Um, This was the role of the prophet and the king. When the office of the prophet and the office of the king functioned functioned as they should, um, it was contemptuous on purpose. Um, In their day, a king would never gather together a room full of prophets. And, and sort of pal around with them because if he did that, the prophets would stand up and bash this king and say, here's everything you're doing wrong. You're ignoring the poor. Um, you're committing adultery. You're doing this and this and this and this. And he does all the things that you are offenses to God. And if you don't turn, God is going to take your power from you. This is what the prophets would do. So when the king gets in a room with prophets, this is what would happen. Matthew's audience knows this. They understand the offense of the prophet being killed. Um, So when it functioned as it should not, um, and it it happened several times in the Old Testament, um, the scriptures would say that the prophets would, uh, they call it tickling the the itching ears of the king. Um, And so there's different passages that you could quote here. Isaiah 30 writes about this. He says, uh, this would be the king talking. They say to the seers, see no more visions. And to the prophets, give us no more visions of what is right. Tell us pleasant things, prophesy illusions, leave this way, get off this path and stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. And so here we have a king looking at the prophet and saying, I don't want to hear anything I'm doing wrong. I don't want to hear about the immorality. I want you to gather with me and I want you to tell me praises and tell me everything that I'm doing right. And if you don't, I'm not going to give you power in this country. And this is how the Old Testament prophets would get off track. And when this happened, you were in grave danger because the voice of God was no longer being spoken to the people with power who needed to hear it, who had the ability to destroy and ruin um, the lives of, of, of thousands and thousands of people. This was their relationship. This is what the Jewish people knew when the prophet wasn't speaking truth to the king. This was a problem. Now, Um, when the people of God get off track, um, when we, so let's talk about us right now. Um, I I want you to sort of think in your mind, how you respond, tend to respond to powerful people when you meet them. Um, and there's two different ways that people tend to respond. Um, sometimes we meet, we rub shoulders with powerful people and we tend to think, oh, this is a, This is a path towards climbing the social ladder, towards wealth, towards better jobs, towards all of this stuff. Um, In the scriptures, the Matthew's audience, the Jewish people, the people of God understood that whenever they came into contact with people of great influence, they had a specific job, which was to speak the will of God into their ears and to remind them that they are not who is actually in charge and they are not who is actually king. And in all of their greatness, and in all of their power, in all of their ability to manipulate people and things and companies and cities and countries, um, the people of God had always a contemptuous relationship with human leaders because they knew they were supposed to be led by God and God alone. And so when they came into the, 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 uh, the contact of powerful people, they would look at them and say, here's some things you're doing wrong. How dare you? I am the king. First off, no, you're not. Yahweh is king. You serve him. You might be like a a representative of the king, but I'm the spokesman of the king. And I'm here to talk to you about your work in this world. This is how God's people were intended to be with power. Instead of brushing up against power to sort of set ourselves up and co-rule with them, there is one ruler, God. And when the early Christians said, Jesus is Lord, what they were saying was nobody else is. This was the mindset of the early Christians. This is how they lived was very important to them. And when they read this story, they see this. Now, um, let's go a little farther because Matthew does something that connects this and goes even farther. Um, Matthew 14, 12, and 13. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. And then they went and told Jesus. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Okay. We read this and there's some layers of it. Yes, he's in mourning. Yes, it's difficult. His cousin has been murdered but there's more to it. This is the logical next step. Let me explain. We've talked about that. I'm, I keep putting this picture up because this is, this is Matthew's audience is Jewish and this is their theology. This is their worldview. They have a cycle that they live in. The king is anointed, the Jewish king over the Israel over, over the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, and he rules. However, the prophet comes to him and warns, if you get off track, things will not go well for you or your people. And then what happens is the king leads Israel astray over and over and over. The king leads Israel astray. And when the king leads Israel astray, there is a specific reaction. It is called the wrath of God. And this is a phrase people don't like to talk about today. Um, But here's the thing. I think people misunderstand the wrath of God because they think that the wrath of God is somehow violent and retributive. Because that's how we do wrath, right? We break stuff and punch people. That is earthly wrath. The wrath of God is wildly different. It is... It's written about in Romans 1. Um, It's written about tons through scriptures. Um, And here's basically what it is. It is the withdrawal of the voice of God, the voice of opposition. So what we have in this passage, let me go back. Um, What we have here is uh, John's disciples come and took his body. They went to Jesus and they told Jesus, the king has killed the prophet. Oh, okay. Jesus takes his people, gets in a boat, and leaves. Why? Matthew, first off, is connecting Jesus with Yahweh, and he's connecting Jesus leaving as Jesus' king, and the king is removing the voice of opposition, the presence of God from the people. This is how the wrath of God works. And you know what the wrath of God is? It, it's described as hardening the hearts of people. You know how the heart hardens? God removes his presence and creates this echo chamber in the minds of the people who have sinned against God. Um, there's this passage where King David sins against God by, with Bathsheba, murders her husband, basically rapes her. Um, not even basically, literally rapes her. Um, this is how we would define this act. Um, and then... King David um, is called out by his prophet. And what does he say? I repent, I'm sorry. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. What is he saying there? Do not, God, please do not remove your presence. Because when this happens, we end up in exile and oppression. That is the next step. And every time the kings have led people astray, the kings have killed the prophets. Um, The voice of God has withdrawn. Um, Paul writes about it. He He says, and God gave them up. Uh, in Romans 1, God just gave them up to the desires that they had. And when God withdraws his presence and the voice of opposition stops being spoken in your ear and in your heart, in your soul, that is a dangerous place to be. That means you are heading into what the, the Israelites would call oppression, exile, torment, separation from God. They would call it living in hell. This is the echo chamber. Here's how this works. The voice of opposition is removed. You begin to hear only the things that you want to hear. Um, You begin to hear, oh, what you're doing is perfectly right. It is the right thing to do. And you surround yourself with people telling you the right thing. And there is no one speaking your ear saying, this is not a good idea. This happens when people become insular, when churches become very monochromatic, and we all have the same exact ideas um, theologically and politically and doctrinally. And we all just, we we spend time affirming ourselves and we become disconnected from other people. And the voice of opposition, you know, our own tribe of Christianity um, is, is, is no longer heard and we begin to move further and farther inwards and we separate ourselves from people. Um, this is called exile. It is when you lose the ability to have influence in the world. This is the judgment of God is what this is. And as the cycle goes, it gets worse and worse and worse for the people. They are oppressed by their enemies. Um, They are in exile. And eventually they say, I want no more of this. It was different before. How do we get back there? And the people call out for repentance. And the repentance uh, ends up with restoration. God sends a judge or a prophet or somebody, a king, or to lead the people out of their oppression and back into the land the way that God has meant for them to dwell. A church. Um, a community, you yourself, you need the voice of opposition in your life. Do not surround yourself with people who are exactly like you. It is a dangerous place to be. You will begin to think everyone in the world thinks exactly like you do. They don't. And the more you block out the voice of opposition, you will disagree with things that I say. Good, you're supposed to. I will disagree with things that you say. This is how it is supposed to be. Sharpening, correcting, rebuking, This is how the body of Christ should work. This is how it was supposed to work with the king and the prophet. This is how um, we are supposed to live. In communion with other people, we do not isolate ourselves out. This is why people should be a part of a church. This is why people should be a part of small groups and house churches. Because the more people you surround yourself with in the body of Christ that are different from you, we should be as much as we can interdenominational, culturally different from each other. So that we can hear the other side. Because some of you have convinced yourself that you are right and you are heading down this path that is actually not true. And there is no one in your life that you are allowing to speak truth to you. We need to listen to each other. We need to, we need to be honest with each other and rebuke each other. Do not stay silent. Love each other enough to speak truth into each other's lives. When someone is doing something stupid, tell them. Tell them how this ends. Remind them. If you have been there already, you especially have a platform to speak from. So, all in all, what we have here is a depiction of two kings. We have King Herod. In Matthew's description, King Herod, he silences God's message. He holds an exclusive banquet for just his people. And he brings death on this silver platter, okay? Um, this is Herod, by the way. Oh, shoot, let me back up. Okay, watch this. Now, I, I want you to see this because the, the, the audience of Matthew um, knew the rest of the story of Herod. And, and you may not. And it's really important because it's, it's perfect. Okay. So what happens is, um, as the story goes, the voice of opposition is removed. Herod's wife, Herodias, matching bags, she, um, she begins to plot. She wants more power, uh, more influence over Rome. She, she has this, she hatches this plan to take over the city of Rome which is where the emperor's ruled from. Um, and she drags her husband, Herod, along with this, And he's like, okay, whatever. And, then, and so they do this. Um, and someone finds out about it. Um, and Emperor Caligula ends up hearing about it. And Emperor Caligula, the emperor of Rome, strips Herod of all his power, of all his money and his riches. And you know what happens to him? He gets sent into exile in a town called Gaul, very far away where he lives and dies, never to return. And the Jewish people read this and they're like, Well, of course, I'm not surprised. It's it's how it goes, right? Exile, duh. Um, Okay, so I think that's super interesting. Maybe I'm the only one. Okay, Um, so Herod is depicted in this specific way. King Herod, Matthew is drawing a contrast between King Herod and his people and King Jesus and his people. And King Jesus, instantly the presence of Yahweh, right? Leading as king removes himself he's in this boat and he's traveling across this lake and um king jesus proclaims god's message to the people and king jesus holds this inclusive banquet you read the description you see jesus traveling across the lake and it says that people were running around the lake he could see them sort of running around the lake and then gathering on the other side this is important for the jewish audience because where jesus was going was jewish territory and gentiles didn't go there and so when Jesus sets the people on the grass and feeds them a meal, they're actually sharing a meal with Gentiles whom they have rejected for a very, very long time. So King Jesus is vastly different than King Herod. He holds this banquet feast to unite Jew and Gentile together and have them all eat. And the, <laughs> the menu is specifically chosen for everyone. Okay. Um, now um, he also brings healing when he comes. Um, all of this is really beautiful. Okay. So you might be reading this thinking and hearing me speak and say, um, I don't think Matthew's doing that because he's just recording things, how they happened. Matthew, again, is not written chronologically. Okay. Um, Matthew pairs stuff together in his book simply because it has theological significance. He's making a point and I can prove this because in, um, in, in verse 15 and verse 23 of this chapter, in both of these verses, um, evening comes. So like there's one day and like evening comes twice in the same day, right? So Matthew is not concerned with chronology. He's making theological arguments. Also, when Jesus gets in the boat um, to sail away, he's in the town of Nazareth. It's landlocked. You can't get in a boat in Nazareth and sail away unless you get in the boat and disciples are pushing it down the driveway. Um <clears throat> So Matthew was not concerned with chronology or apparently even geography. Matthew was concerned with theology. That's what he is doing. He's making a dichotomy between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of Jesus in the same way that he did in the previous chapter. So let's go to the next verse and keep this rolling. Matthew 14, 14. When Jesus landed, he saw large crowds of people. He had compassion on them and he healed their sick. This is a foreshadow to the cross. Jesus has just received news about death. He is tormented and in pain about this news of death. And in his pain and suffering, he has compassion on the people and brings healing to them. These things will happen over and over in the book of Matthew so that when you get to the cross and you see Jesus dying on the cross yet still having compassion on the people around him and bringing them healing and wholeness, the audience says, of course, this is everything that we expect King Jesus to do. All right, so it's it's beautiful. Um, On top of that, Jesus cares whether or not the people are fed. Let's go um, a little farther because, okay, so in chapter 13, the chapter we just finished, there are these parables that have been written from top to bottom, um, stories that didn't happen. They're just like riddles and parables. They're meant to teach you specifically about the kingdoms of, of earth and the kingdom of heaven. That is the whole point of chapter 13, the entire thing, story after story after story in rapid fire succession saying, here's what the kingdom of heaven is like. Here's what the kingdom of heaven is like. Here's what the kingdom of heaven is like. Now you get to chapter 14 and you have a perfect display of the kingdom in real life. So here we move from these abstract descriptions in story form to, well, why don't we just show you what it looks like? Jesus takes his people and he leaves the kingdom of Herod, which is falling apart, obviously going into exile and destruction. And he gathers Jews and Gentiles together. He sits them on the grass and he starts feeding them. Let's read the story. As evening approached for the first time, uh, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so that they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. And Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass and taking five loaves and the two fishes and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and he broke the loaves. And then he gave to them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Okay. So we'll start here. From the beginning of Matthew, there has been this depiction of Jesus As Moses, but a better Moses. It's 40 days in the wilderness, a flight from Egypt. The entire story of Moses is he's standing um, on a hillside bringing the law, right? All of it is a picture of Moses. So we get here and we have specific images of Moses. Um, We have him leading them out of the wilderness where Herod lived onto green pastures. This is how the scriptures, the Old Testament, described uh Canaan, the promised land. Um you have him feeding them miraculous food, just like Moses calling manna down from heaven to feed the people. Um and there are twelve baskets left over symbolizing the twelve tribes of Israel. However, Jesus has a better Moses. He's amending their view of Moses and saying, look at me now, because he's not just feeding them food like manna, where in the story of the manna in the book of Exodus if you kept manna for more than a day, it would spoil and go bad. You could only eat what you gathered that day. Jesus brings food, 12 baskets, symbolizing the 12 tribes of Israel, and they're overflowing. What does that mean? That means there's more for other people, not just Israel. And gathered around those baskets are the Gentiles, the people who have never been included in God's story. And Jesus says, it is time I bring them in. This will not, no longer be an inclusive in, exclusive club. It will be an inclusive gathering and a banquet. So you have all this imagery of Moses and the Jewish audience would be like, wow. Okay. Now, second, you have the imagery of the parables that he just told. Remember the mustard seed and you plant it and it doesn't just grow into a mustard bush. It grows into this massive tree that feeds everyone. Okay. Five loaves, two fishes. And it it feeds 5,000 people plus their households upwards of 15,000, 20,000, as, as the writer describes it. Um, on top of that, um, Jesus told a parable of a, a woman with a little bit of yeast and a mountain of dough, and she works it through all the dough to feed a banquet. Jesus has been like telling them these stories, and here he just gathers it and lays it all out. Here's how it looks in real life. We're going to feed all these people. It's going to be an inclusive banquet with people outside the church, inside the church, and, and, and we're all going to be here together to do this miraculous thing together. Now, All of this is intended to teach you Matthew's theology of the role of the church. Let me show you what I mean. Um, In verse 15, they say, it's getting late. It's about mealtime. Why don't we send the people away? They're not destitute. They have money. Let's send them away to get some food. And Jesus says, you don't need to send them away. They don't need to do anything. Here's what we're gonna do. I want you to feed them. And they say, well, I I don't have enough. All we have here is five loaves and two fishes. And Jesus says, give it to me. I want you to picture Matthew and his church, maybe 20 people, just a ragtag group of rebels, Christian rebels in this empire. An army of peace, just there loving their neighbors, thinking, how can I ever make a difference? And in this story, this is the only story that's captured in all four of the gospels. It is an incredible story to them. It's very important. Um, And he says, give me what you have. Okay, loaf, fish, there you go. And Jesus takes it and he he breaks them in half. And he goes, oh, now you've got two, right? And they're like, yeah, thanks, Jesus. Now I've I've got two meals, right? Um, So there's this image of like, he takes what you have and he breaks it, right? And then he gives it back to you. So now, it is yours when you receive it back. It is yours, but it's not just yours. It's also ours and everyone else's. What you have, this simple thing that you have, um, whatever it is that you can offer the kingdom, whatever little bit you have, whatever little bit of abilities, whatever little um, little faith you have, whatever little um, talent you, that did, did you have, you offer it up. And it's like, it is received by God. And he, and he lifts it up and he says, thank you. He blesses it and he says, he looks up to heaven and says, thank you for what we have. Breaks it and gives it to them and says, now give it, give it away to the people. You know what this is not? This is not the people at the beginning because Jesus changes their mind. They say, the people are hungry. Tell them where they can get food. And they're calling out to God, right? Jesus, in the, God in the flesh. And they're saying, um, tell the people what to do. In other words, Lord, these people are hungry. Thoughts and prayers, please feed them somehow. And then suddenly um, Jesus replies, they do not need to go away. Give them something to eat. He says, you give them something to eat. Oh, I don't have enough. I only have enough for me. That's all I have. What can I do? There's nothing I can do. I'm just me. There's this thing happening and there's nothing I can do. And he says, are you sure? I'm like, yes. Well, let's take an inventory. What do you have? I've just got this. This is it. This is all I have. And he says, well, give it to me. And then he calls the people and says, sit down. And he takes what they have. He says, God, thank you for this simple thing. And he gives it back to them and says, now feed them. And everyone is fed. The symbolism here is incredible and it's striking. It is Matthew's call to the church and to the future church. Stop waiting and praying without acting. Do something. I know you don't think you have much, neither do we, neither do the disciples. All we can do is gather as a church of 20 people and write a book. It's probably not going to do anything. Here we are, 2000 years later, this copy, this book is everywhere and it's changing people's lives. This is an encouraging thing from the, from, from the, um, the Matthew community, and they are reaching out to you and they are begging you because these stories, they aren't meant to be like, you're not meant to like read this and say, well, Jesus did a magic trick and then people believed he was God. This is meant to be, no, 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 no. Jesus activated the people and he taught them theologically how this works in the world. The miracle is just a side thing. That's not even the focus, okay? And it's not like we're supposed to read this and say, well, it's important because it happened. No, no, no. It's important because it happens every single day. People offer up what they have, I have one little decision I can make a day to steer something towards the kingdom of God and I'm going to take it. And he says, now watch, mustard seed in the ground. Boom, tree. Everything Jesus has been saying, he displays. And this story was incredibly important to the early church. They told it over and over and over. So what we have here is this story of of, of the Matthean church. This, these accounts are theological as anything else. It's an invitation to rise above merely praying for things or noticing them and saying, well, we should tell them how to fix their problem. No, this is the Matthean church begging you, know your place in this world. John died because he did his job of speaking the truth to power because he cared about the people underneath that king. And so John got killed for it. Every one of the disciples were killed for what they did except for one, He may have, we don't actually know what happened to him. Um, But like, it did not go well for these people, but they didn't care. They understood what they were here for. They also understood God has now no physical body in this world, except for the body of Christ. We are the physical presence of Jesus. If somebody needs to get fed, um, yes, we should pray that they would get fed and then get up, dust off your knees, go feed them. That is your role. You are the hands of Christ. You are the feet of Christ. Do not get upset when you see Christians calling out people with power and telling them that what they're doing is wrong and unjust. This is our job. I will do that forever, no matter who becomes king or emperor or president. This time, next time, until I'm 50 years old, my Facebook's probably going to be pretty mean to emperors. Like it's, it's my job as, as someone who is speaking the message of God. It is your job. Okay? Look, love people, um, be there for them, speak the truth to them. Do it, saying what you are doing is not the path of Christ. It's unjust and it's wrong. You're hurting people and speak it. And when you see people speaking it, even if you disagree with them, understand they feel like this is their role in the kingdom of God. Okay, take part in. It. Hear the voice of opposition. Do not allow yourself to put your fingers in your ears and not listen to anymore to people who are saying, "I think this is probably the way of God." Engage theologically, doctrinally, debate. Are you? This is all part of it. We are the family of God. The Jewish people they 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 have always argued about the things of God. We have thousands and thousands and thousands of writing of rabbinical writing from the first century in the time of Christ. They were doing this. They cared. We need to take part in it. We should not become insular and tribal. We need to be the voice of God, the hands of God. Also realize this, everything that you have is not yours. None of it is actually yours. I don't teach tithing, the whole like, give 10% of everything. Like, I think that's a great, but I think when you teach tithing, oftentimes it robs God of his rightful 90 other percent. All of it, everything you have should be leveraged for the kingdom somehow your, your choices should be just and loving the way you spend your money, the way you spend your time, the way you spend your evenings and your afternoon. No one's gonna lay on their deathbed and say, I wish I had finished season five of that Netflix series. Like no one, you know what they're gonna say? I, I wish I had spent more time with this. I wish I had leveraged this part of my life in this direction. Um, live with purpose and meaning. Pour yourself out. This is what life is about. This is what we're doing here. Let's say communion, dang it. Our servers, you guys can take the elements and you can spread around the room. Um, Think about it. The body of Christ, the blood of Christ broken and poured out for you so that you could find healing. And then he says, and this is how you should live. And in every passage of the gospels, he is doing that and showing you how it works. And then he's telling stories about how it really will work. And then he's showing it to you like at some point grasp, this is the way to live. It is not about amassing power and wealth for yourself. Two or three generations from now, it is likely that no one will, will know your name. But we do now. And we will partner with you to do the work that you want to do. Reach out to your brothers and sisters. Let's offer the people a little taste of the kingdom of God in our city. And so our communion servers are going to gather the elements and they're going to spread around the room. There is bread. It's broken for you. There is wine poured out for you. This is the unifying feature of the church No matter what you have, no matter how holy or pious you are, how sinful and messed up your past is, when you come to the table, we all receive the same thing, the same amount of grace, body of Christ broken for you, blood of Christ poured out for you, for your healing. Be filled, be made whole again. Let's pray. Let's take communion, shall we? Father, thank you for this place and these people. Guide us. Help us to repent fully. Help us to change. Help us to know our place in this world as your people. Thank you. In your name. Amen. Take some time. Talk to Jesus.